Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. Today, I want to get to a couple of housekeeping details on the podcast, and then we'll get into the interview. If you're listening to this on audio, you can also check it out on YouTube. Go to YouTube and just search The Sacred Speaks. And while you're there, be sure to like and subscribe the page. It helps. If you are watching this on YouTube, you can also do the same thing on audio on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, any of the podcast affiliates and that would be much appreciated. Today's interview really happened as a result of my friend Jeff Kripal, and it just so happens that he has one of my favorite quotes he's ever given, uh, about somebody else that is, uh, on the back of Brian's book, The Immortality Key. And I think he does such a good job of describing what this book is about that I want to do it in his words. So in Jeff's words, in Brian Murescu, the psychedelic theory of religion has its newest and most accomplished scholar historian who also happens to be very funny. This is no crackpot idea. This is genuine scholarship at its deepest, most comparative, and most conceptually radical. The breadth of the investigation is simply astonishing. The Eleusian mysteries, the cosmic love of God, Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, and Catalan, flying witches and the long religious war on women, the Vatican secret archives, democracy, ethics, and the unity of humankind, hard archaeochemical and DNA evidence, the first Dionysian miracle of Christ in the Gospel of John, the political radicalism of Eucharist, LSD-laced graveyard beer and psychedelic wine, buckle up tight, Toto, you were never in Kansas, it's Oz everywhere and always. From Jeffrey Kripal, the Associate Dean of Faculty in Graduate Studies at Rice University and the author of many of my favorite books, and this is one of my newest favorite books too to add alongside that. So thanks Jeff, appreciate the uh, the wisdom, the quote, and uh, the connection here. Today's guest is Brian Murescu, and check him out on his website at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Murescu, M-U-R-A-R-E-S-K-U.com. And there's a celebration today because the immortality key is now on the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, that is a cause for celebration. Brian, congratulations, and thank you for participating there have been a number of tendrils that are reaching out uh, following this podcast where I will, I think I've booked now another five. I've booked three and I will book another two more podcast conversations as a result of this one. There is a rabbit trail here I am happy to be following. Thanks, Brian. Much appreciated. Okay, on top of that, uh, I've got a class coming up uh, at the Young Center in Houston Look that up at younghouston, J-U-N-G, houston.com.org, excuse me, younghouston.org. It's four Tuesdays, April 27th through May 18th, and we're going to talk about, uh, the, the class is titled How to Die Before You Die. It's a total reference to this book, uh, The Origin and Future of Religion. And Brian is going to come into the last class, uh, either the third to last class or the last class, to talk about some of these ideas because the suggested reading for the class is The Immortality Key. Check that class out. It'll be happening again in April. Okay, next, I'm starting to do video recording for each episode, and I will have, uh, starting probably, <laughs> I've been saying this a while, in a month, 
I'll start doing episodes that are deconstructing or amplifying aspects of each episode. This is episode number 61, so I've got a lot of territory to revisit. The theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. It's a good friends, Toby Pipes and Nolan Teese, and they have produced a fantastic bit of work together. The Sacred Speaks, look it up at thesacredspeaks.com. And also the podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Look that up at the Center for H-A-S, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. This is a boutique integrative wellness practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started a while back, and we're expanding and growing this practice. Go check it out. So thank you for being here. Thanks for participating, Brian. Thanks for connecting this, Jeff. And we'll leave it there for now. Okay, anything before we get cracking? No, I feel like I was just hypnotized. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, d- you were, you were. That's the coolest thing about this. <laughs> you totally were. <laughs> I don't know what just happened there, but it feels good. This is great, man. What's in this tea? I'm sure you get a lot of that, though. What, you know. Yeah, I do. Every day. So let me um, introduce you. First, it's my great pleasure to introduce Brian Murarescu. And I said that right, right? Perfectly. Good. Well, to a classicist like yourself, I, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, somebody that speaks many languages. It's intimidating, yeah, the amount of languages that you speak, which we'll get into. So this book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, is one of my f- favorite books. And I'm really honored to be talking to you right now, Brian. Uh, so welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host, and I'm here with Brian Mararescu. And I'm going to read your bio Brian graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. As an alumnus of Georgetown Law and a member of the New York Bar, he's been practicing law internationally for 15 years. He lives outside Washington, D.C. with his wife and two daughters. In 2016, Murarescu became the founding executive director of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Their work has been featured on CNN and ESPN, as well as The Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle. In arbitration with the NFL in 2018, Murarescu represented the first professional athlete in the United States to seek a therapeutic use exemption for cannabis. Welcome to the Sacred Speaks, Brian. I am very excited to chat with you today, man. Likewise. Good to be here, man. Yes. Okay. Well, let's... Uh, it was great. I, I, I've never done this before, but there was a point where I was listening to your book and reading it simultaneously. It was nice. It was really nice to um, to get into it and taking notes. I'm sure I look like the nutty professor. Uh, so uh, I know you're doing a ton of these. Uh, obviously, when when Jeff Kripal and I were initially uh, corresponding about your book, he was like, "Man, he's going to be doing a ton of press." And I am judging by your schedule that you are doing a ton of press. <laughs> um, so you're 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 habituated into uh, this kind of conversation. And by chance, did you get my email earlier with a letter attached? I do. I do my diligence, John. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, good, man. Then we'll, we'll jump into that later. I just wanted to see if I start referencing it. So uh, the first part, uh, I'd love for you to just lay out your thesis. And um, for anybody who hasn't heard of your work, your work, that way we can kind of dive into it, maybe some personal history. And then I got a couple of things I want to uh, set us up with. So first and foremost, jump into uh, what this book is all about. Okay, so this is the, the past 12 years of my life and, and many years beyond that. But it became a book about 12 years ago and in fits and starts. And it's essentially my hunt for the best kept secret in history, which is not bullshit marketing. This is the great Houston Smith, whom I'm sure you know very well. Yes. Uh, but, but Houston became a psychedelic initiate himself in the 1960s and called it the greatest cosmic homecoming he'd ever experienced. Uh, up in Boston. Uh, and there were other folks like Huxley and Watts and, and people who were into this stuff before the war on drugs and before some of the sociocultural bias. And so to Houston, what was happening in ancient Greece to him was one of these best kept secrets. And he's referring there to the mysteries of Eleusis, this, this ancient spiritual capital in ancient Greece that called to everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius for like 2000 years. Uh, and he's specifically referring to the sacrament that was used. There was a sacrament at this temple of Eleusis that was somehow part of this beatific vision that resulted conquering the fear of death, making these people immortal. But the big question, the two big questions I try and answer are essentially were the ancient Greeks using drugs to find God? And number two, did the earliest Christians inherit some of that tradition, you know, as some of the earliest Christians, I'm not talking about JC himself, but I'm talking about some of the earliest Christian communities, because if the Greeks were doing this, it would stand to reason that the earliest Greek speaking Christians in very Greek communities might be doing the same thing. And so that's essentially the past 12 years of my life. And you jumped in heavy. I mean, you got, <laughs> you got, <laughs> you got in deep, man. I mean, you are a, uh, a thorough seeker if I've ever known one. <laughs> where where did that gene come from? That's a great. I wish I wish I knew. Uh, maybe there are are you know. I come from a long line of uh, Irish Romanian Catholics. I'm not sure how far back, but religion gets in there deep somewhere. Uh, I th I think that I mean it's just you know I wrote it for myself. I've said this before. I wrote the book for me. I mean I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm glad people are enjoying it. This was you know my my personal quest to try and find meaning and to try and resolve my own identity crisis. I'm here talking to a therapist so I can, I can let all my, all my defenses down and talk about my weird identity crisis, about learning Latin and Greek from Jesuits, you know, who, who the, the very last thing I think they expected was for me to use that to question the origins of the faith <laughs> and the world's biggest religion. But they always, they were the ones, really, the Jesuits were the ones who, who taught me to ask questions and never stop digging. That's such a religious attitude, though. It's, it's a weird conflict that organized religion gets into when they say, let's ask some of the deepest questions, but not those. <laughs> don't, you, don't, don't come here with that shit. Medium questions <laughs> yeah, are fine. Don't, <laughs> don't call me on that, really. Like, uh, I'll just talk about faith and then we're good. Right. <laughs> so, so your early history was quite religious. Is a, I mean, or, or was it, you know, kind of what we call socially religious? What, what, what did religion do for you then? I mean, it started socially religious. I, I was in a Catholic school from the time I was in kindergarten for the succeeding 13 years, including four years with those Jesuits. Um, and at some point when you're uh, 
invited into the sacred languages of Western civilization. I mean, Greek and Latin are sacred languages. Latin, the sacred language of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Greek still to this day, the sacred language of the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, I mean, these were the things that, that seemed to have gotten civilization going. And you, know, you don't realize it at first, but at some point, you start to realize that something's happening with these languages. And it's not just a language barrier. It's not just that you're learning grammar and syntax and these crazy stories about gods and goddesses. When you take a Jungian approach to these classical languages or you take an archetypal approach to what's happening, and I read a lot of Joe Campbell too, you start to realize that what you're reading are the way people thought about the deepest mysteries, the biggest questions that we all have, have never answered. like where do we come from, where we're going and all that stuff and wrapped up in all these stories through the lens of the language are answers, are, are genuine answers. You're, well, since you've opened the door to being vulnerable in our therapeutic space here, considering it's just <laughs> you and me here, we're, we're going to be just <laughs> totally open. Uh, one of my, probably one of the most important bits of feedback that I got while doing my dissertation was from James Hollis, who was on my committee. And it was it was tough to take because he said, John, you know, errors in language are errors in thought. Mm. And I, I had realized that what I was <laughs> what I was doing when I was younger was probably learning how to sleep in class. And I didn't pay attention to a lot of those classes. And and it took me being, you know, well into adulthood to say, God, I really need to get very well acquainted with the language I use. And it is still in process. There's no doubt in mm. my mind. But reading your work, I had this um, anxiety, you know, about how, how, how much I have to learn and how important it is to know these languages. I also, I almost feel like I'm, sh I'm shut out of the club, you know, because mm. it, it's like what we were talking about with Jeff Kripal. You know, I really needed a, a language of religion. And now that I've got that, I feel like I can move in and out of these conversations pretty well. But when it comes to Latin, Greek, I mean, even English, you know, I'm not, I'm not well equipped. I mean, I never quite know what a semicolon really is for, quite frankly. So, so reading your book, I felt um, just a smidge of intimidation and such excitement to talk with you, uh, an expert, because mm -hmm. your background is in Greek, Latin, and Sanskrit, correct? Mm -hmm. But you speak mm -hmm. other languages. Uh, yeah, most of them are, are dead. I also studied Arabic for a few years and had the pleasure of living in Cairo for a few months working for the UN. Um, we are, we're in a Spanish speaking family. I'm in Uruguay right now. My, my wife was born and raised here. So we're COVID refugees for the remainder of the school year for our two wow. daughters. So we're a Spanish speaking home. Um, I worked in a Spanish speaking institution for a while where uh, Portuguese came in handy. So at least being able to read it and French as well when working in Haiti. Um, what else? Uh, I mean, most of the romantics yeah. come, come in handy. Yeah. So just traveling down the, you know, your timeline, why law? What, what was that? I, the, the best answer I can give you is that I was sick and tired of being broke. And that's, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the honest answer. I grew up pretty broke and, and like most college kids stayed pretty broke, at least in my early 20s. And I wanted to be a, a priest, I really did, or a classics professor. I mean, by the time I was 21, for example, I'd had uh, eight years of Latin, seven years of Greek, four years of Sanskrit, a few years of Arabic, and there's not much you can do with that on Wall Street. So I figured that to, to make these, these services marketable, I did a, a left turn into law school, which in America, 
uh, is, is pretty easy to do. There's no, you know, there's no basic pre-law program, uh, you know, and when you're studying the humanities. So for, for me, it was an easy enough transition, but, you know, I, I became a sellout, basically. Uh, I, I had I wanted... a different word for it. You, you, you seem like a, a, a multidisciplinary um, group in one person. <laughs> and, and that's what I really like about your, you can draw from a lot of different wells when you're talking about this. So when you can speak the language of religion and the language of language, ah, you know, come on, that's amazing. Well, thanks. I'll, you know, I'll, I'm going to tell that story instead from now on. <laughs> it, was all, it was all part of the plan. Yeah, there's, a, there's an inherent wisdom. Well, from the Jungian lens, there was something deep that was growing through you in your path of individuation. You had to, you know, so on and so forth. I'll say, I'm going to use that, man. That's perfect. Good. So, uh, what, do you remember the moment, the, the bug that got you to go down this path? Yes, there, there was one moment. There, I mean, there was a moment in time like, that I can always, I can always point to. My, my life before that moment and my life after that moment was sometime in 2007. And I was sitting in my office at Milbank Tweed, Hadley and McCloy, an august law firm, a block north of the Trump building on Wall Street on the 57th floor staring out across the East River. And I picked up a copy of The Economist as I write about in the intro to the book. It's all, it's a true story. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd been sitting there in the corner of my office for the better part of a year. I picked it up looking for anything that wasn't about finance, even though that's what it was doing there ostensibly. And there's this little article, The God Pill, written in 2006, I believe, and you can still find it online. But it was one of the first write-ups of the experiments coming out of Hopkins with psilocybin. And I'd never done psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. I still haven't done them to this day. And psychedelics just weren't on my radar. Uh, and then here comes this article talking about these people taking one and only dose of psilocybin and describing it as among the most meaningful experiences of their lives. And today, as a matter of fact, if you talk to the same people who conducted those experiments, uh, Bill Richards uh, and, and Roland Griffiths at Hopkins, they'll tell you it's 75% today. So three in four people who go through one of these carefully programmed trials will wind up describing it as one of the most meaningful of their entire life. And so even though psychedelics weren't on my radar, the first thing I thought of, like a, like a shot at a, you know, shot across the bow was, uh, was Eleusis. And it was th this book from 1978, relatively obscure, and fairly controversial, The Road to Eleusis by Gordon Wasson, another Wall Street guy turned uh, am amateur mushroom hunter, <laughs> Albert Hoffman, who discovers LSD, and Carl Ruck, who at the time was the chair of the classics department at Boston University. And I'd read it as an undergrad and was fascinated by them talking about this crazy idea about the Greeks doing drugs. And I put it down because there, there wasn't a lot of scholarship on this stuff. And then there's the, this magical moment in 2007 where you know, these experiences are happening again in the last place you expect them in the laboratory in this clinical psychopharmacology world. And, you know, it's, it's circumstantial, but it was enough for me to think if it's happening now, why couldn't this happen not 50 years ago or 2000 years ago, but maybe 20,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago? You know, our neurochemistry hasn't changed. This is powerful stuff. What if we can tap back into it? And that, that's, it should be noted that that's, I mean, you make reference to the Neanderthals in like 430,000 years ago, and that's the kind of scope this book is representing. It's not a deep exploration of that timeline. Really, you would say it's, what, 12,000 years ago to today? Is that yes, kind I, of really I where you focused? I artificially start at 12,000 years ago. Um, in, in the sequel that's being written as we speak, um, I'm happy to explore the millions of years that precede that. 
Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, I'm I eagerly await your forthcoming work. It's <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh yeah, are you are you writing daily right now? Uh well, the the way that I do is uh I I collect these these random piles of notes and you know, I'm like like a scrying mirror. I'm waiting for those notes to kind of make sense in some way. But I mean, I've been I've been taking the, these notes since 2007 and so they exist in this virtual repository. Uh, behind you know a double firewall and when when the, when things start to make sense that that's when i start to put it on the on the paper what does your desk look like <laughs> you... well, right now like this yeah this is totally this... minimalist right this is the tabula rasa that is that is my life <laughs> i don't believe you i think there's shit everywhere right leave leave no trace man uh, yeah <laughs> I wish I keep a, a, a photograph of Albert Einstein's desk the day he died, just as a reminder and to validate how totally messy I can become when I'm in like nice. creative. Just that part, dude, you should see the rest of it. Every, it's an illusion <laughs> when you're on camera. <laughs> Every, everything else has crap all over it. So did you, uh, when you were raised by the Jesuits, what's th this is a group of folks that are deeply contemplative and, um, and teach, uh, I, I think, a, a, a really fantastic academic f approach. Um, and not to mention the religious component. D did, did you have deeper questions when you were younger? Yeah, yeah, from as, as early as I can remember. And they were always there to answer them. Yeah. I mean, not so much when I was in grade school, but by the time I was 14 and 15 and being asked to read the New Testament with new eyes, essentially, uh, by these brilliant Jesuits, you know, every, anytime I had a question there, I mean, they, they were there to answer it or at least point in the right direction. I, you know, I just got, I got I lucky, I guess. I mean, I, I was never force fed a version of Catholicism that didn't make sense to me, I guess is the best way to put it. For, for me, it was always a positive experience. Take this bit of it. Don't take this bit of it. I mean, they were there to introduce me to the history of the church and the doctrine and the, and the dogma, but I was never asked to believe anything. Maybe I'm, mis, I'm misstating it, but uh, at St. Joe's Prep, it was just like, for me, you use the word raised. I mean, these are the people who raised me. It was a rough time in my life. Um, and at that time, my parents hadn't gone to college. And so I didn't have a lot of mentorship in terms of what came next for my life. And it was the Jesuits. It was my Greek teacher who was there helping me put together college applications and hopping me on a train up to Providence to, to visit Brown for the first time. I mean, these, these were the people who, who sent me off in, into the world to keep asking questions. Well, that's because, yeah, you didn't, you weren't raised in a family of academics. Uh, I mean, <laughs> no, I would say the, uh, I, I would say the opposite. My, my mom wound up going to college uh, just the, to grit and determination uh, as, as, as a mother raising three sons on her own. But uh, when I was a teenager, the, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't much there. And my grandparents never went obviously. So this is, you know, it was, uh, when I came home reading Latin and Greek by myself at 15, it was a, it was a weird experience that that was my escape. It was my escape into, you know, the world that I always associated with like dead poet society and this yeah. world of tweed jackets in the 1950s and slick hair. And like, for me to sit down with Greek, that was my, I mean, that was a fantasy for me. It's still a fantasy. And I smell the paper of my old textbooks and I just, I, I get lost in, in 1995. So when were you first offered drugs? What was the, what was the age when you first saw drugs? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, uh, 
my mom's not going to like this, but in Philly, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever answered that question. But I mean, you know, I was drugs were I mean, became, you know, actually, you know, you know what the honest answer is when I was uh, like uh, 10 years old. Uh-huh. So, I mean, when I was in fourth or fifth grade, uh, a police officer, several of them came to my classroom in my elementary school as part of the D.A.R.E. program. D.A.R.E., sure. Dare. And so, I mean, honestly, that's what I mean. The ones who told me not to do drugs were the ones who informed me about drugs for the first time, ironically enough. I remember uh, that which, talk. <laughs> I mean, I had that talk for a year. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Well, yeah. So to not, you know, to not experiment, I guess, with psychedelics, you know, then you've you're having it. I saw I saw on a school bus when I was in sixth grade, somebody had a joint and a taint, a little tape cassette, you know, and I just, I had no idea what to think about it, you know, but that was my first, ex- aside from the fourth, fifth grade thing when the cops came to dare, you know, the, they did yeah. the dare talk. You had yeah. that thing? I had that thing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I wonder, I don't, to go to your book for a second, there is a, there is of course a very important byline of the authority and those who are in power and how those who are in power enact some kind of control on, um, ideas and thoughts and certainly behaviors that could disrupt the norms that are established by the power and authority, which is certainly a byline that goes through all of religious tradition anyway, which is a thread I want to get into. Um, but I, I, I love that. And I think Graham Hancock said it in your, uh, in the beginning of your book where he was saying, thankfully there's this guy who's not, you know, some psychonaut who's making an argument because um, so often that's been the first um, spear thrown at any of these folks who are trying to bring these ideas out into the collective. You know, they're just right. some crazy druggie who's trying to validate their own uh, pleasure seeking. <laughs> Hedonism right. at its best. Right. <clears throat> uh, so did you read any of these folks when you were younger? You know, from the. Yeah. Oh, by the way, side side note again, uh, my my wife will be frustrated. I've ordered more books that are referenced in your book than many of the books I read. I, I think I've probably spent an obscene amount of money and I've got, you know, 16 books coming over the next two weeks. Good for you. I know the feeling. Thanks Good for, for that. You. No, I knew you, I knew you did too. I was reading going definitely Brian, Brian's in that department. Okay. So um, kind of take us through part of your own process of discovery. And okay. if you would just kind of tend to that, I'll ask questions as we go, but I'm 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 curious about you just kind of showing how it evolved for you from your um, from that economic um, the Economist article. Um, yeah, I mean it was a, a magical period in my life. I was 27, and uh, I no the the answer to the question is no. I hadn't read a lot of psychedelic literature until then. I mean I was vaguely aware of who Albert Hoffman was, vaguely aware of Timothy Leary. I'd never heard of Terence McKenna, uh-huh. and that guy just just blew my mind wide open. <laughs> so. There was a couple of books there along the way. I mean, as, as a bibliophile, I mean, the best way to talk about my process is the different books that came to me. Sure. So, so Graham's, Graham's Supernatural was one of them. There was another great book by a friend, Daniel Pinchbeck, uh, Breaking Open the Head. Uh, there was a book by Jeremy Narby, um, The Cosmic Serpent. Yes, and he's on That's my list. <laughs> a, 
you got to talk to Jerry. I mean, that was a big book for me. I mean, there's, you know, there was a handful of books there where I did the same thing that maybe you're doing now. I, I would go to the bibliography and I used my law firm salary to order hundreds, not, I mean, not dozens, hundreds of books. And I, <laughs> I hired a Portuguese carpenter to come into my apartment in New York and build custom bookshelves for hundreds of books that came from these bibliographies because there was something there. I mean, it had been so off my radar that by the time it got there, it wasn't like a minor blip. It was just this, this explosion on, on the screen. And I, I felt sorely undereducated about something that clearly had meaning for people. And it was, it was that Hopkins study. I mean, people yeah. find meaning in these substances under the right set and setting, obviously. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of lore and a lot of mystery around these things. And, you know, slap on the war on drugs on top of it. I just felt like we, we'd missed something because it wasn't the way that drugs were talked about in the 1950s by the likes of Huxley right. and, and, and Watts and everybody else and Houston Smith. And another guy, Watt Wasson, one of the co-authors on this book, The Road to Eleusis, I picked that back up again. Uh, and I was reading how he talked about his experience with psilocybin containing mushrooms in 1955, which he later famously publishes in Life magazine in 1957, uh, the, the rediscovery uh, of the, the new era of psychedelics, essentially. I mean, he, he's the guy who, who turns on in one way or another, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin and everybody else. It was this guy Wasson in Mexico doing these mushrooms. But what he talks about is not some recreational event. The way he talks about his experience is this this realer than real sense of breaking through into the archetypes of, of piercing the illusion of reality. And he immediately asked the question, you know, could, could the divine mushrooms be the secret behind these ancient mysteries? Uh, that's not the kind of writing you would find in the 1970s and, and, and eighties, you know, in the height of the war. So to, to see that people like him were talking about it in very literate, I mean, very, very dignified terms really kind of turned me on to all this literature. And I, I basically, I spent years and years, nights and weekends, just reading that kind of stuff. Well, and his story alone could be, uh, it, 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 um, it goes through the same dynamic that happens with what I was talking about earlier, organized tradition and the kind of um, experiencers of that essence. The, I've, I felt for him so deeply when you were writing about his essentially excommunication from the a seat at the table of academia, where people are just going, this fucking guy, we're like, get him out of here, you know? And, right. and for you to take him and you two to connect at, at years later and essentially have a, a narrative of redemption from his early theories, I, that was a very cool little side story, if not pretty centrally showing the, the dynamics that have been playing through out all of time around these kinds of subjects. It's a human story. I, I didn't want to write a dry book. I mean, it's a, it's a human story about a guy who's now 85 years old. Uh, this guy, Carl Ruck, he was once the chair of the classics department, educated at Harvard and Yale, like no slouch. And he just happens to write this crazy book about drugs. And it's, it's largely rejected by the academy. Um, partly because of bias, partly for good reason. I mean, there's, there's no scientific data. There wasn't any hard scientific data to support it at the time, which didn't mean it ought to be uh, dismissed because there were other classicists writing about this stuff, even speculating about this stuff without the hard data behind them. I mean, folks like Carl Kerenyi and Walter Burkert, these gold standard scholars I mentioned in the book, they were out there speculating about this stuff. I don't know why he got the, the short end of the stick, but it is what it is. And then he dove full in and became the, the drug guy 
for the subsequent 42 years. He still is the drug guy. Uh, and, you know, I felt like his, his theories needed a fairer shake because I, I saw that other scholars were getting a fair shake. So uh, one of the things I stumbled upon along the way was this archaeochemistry. And that, that, mm-hmm. that's a big character in the book. I mean, the two biggest characters in the book are beer and wine, by the way, right. for a reason because beer and wine are important. And we know more about them now than we did 20 years ago because this archaeochemistry is going out and doing organic residue analysis of all these chalices and cups and containers that that turn up in excavations. And when they're subjected to the right analysis, all this great data is now emerging about what our ancestors were actually consuming and why. And that wasn't the case in 1978. And so now we have all this data and, and this relatively new discipline to shed brand new light on some of the most exciting moments in the history of Western civilization. Well, and just to um, try, try to reach out and touch someone, I, I, I think that we should tip the hat to Stone uh, IPA, or is it Stone Double IPA? And if anybody at Stone is listening, you can send a couple of cases because Brian and I are going to get together at some point and we're going to talk about your beer and talk about the history of beer. So uh, reach out to the Sacred Speaks, please so that we can arrange our beverages for the evenings. Uh, I'm very partial to the, the enjoy buys, <laughs> everybody right. has known. They've got, they, they got me through much of the research process. Well, and it's, you know, at the risk of jumping ahead, but we can kind of jump ahead and jump back at the same time. It, what, I, what I thought a lot about as I was reading was how beer and wine don't mean what beer and wine mean to us today. And right. so when we go back to these early, you know, we're talking 10,000 years ago, um, there seems to be a big connection between death and beer. Mm. Would, you, would you explore that a bit? Yeah, hence, hence the, 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 the phrase that I coined, graveyard beer, yes. which I, I need to copyright graveyard beer. You do, because so somebody's going to definitely make some, that. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a good label for a bottle. No, so. No. The idea that so I'm looking for these sacraments. So this controversial theory that the Greeks were using drugs to find God, right? It happens in this old sacrament that fascinated Houston Smith and, and others called the kukion, which in Greek just means like a mixed beverage or a cocktail. And as far as we can tell from the ancient sources, the kukion in ancient Greece, at least, uh, was comprised of three principal ingredients, barley, water, and mint, we're not really sure what to make of that, but if you look at it from afar, it kind of reads like a rudimentary recipe for beer with, with the barley in there. And what Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck were saying is that the barley was really a code word. Alfi in Greek was a code word, not for barley, but for ergotized barley. So barley that had been infected with this naturally occurring fungus ergot that is very, very common. Uh, has been across history, is even today. And I went to Munich, Germany to talk to the world's premier beer scientist, Martin Zarnkow, about this. Uh, and, and he says that, you know, this ergot still happens. You got to be careful, even in today's brewing, uh, when, you're, when you're doing the harvest, because the, this stuff is dangerous, it's toxic. And it's not the classic kind of psychedelic you think of. Um, it is the fungus from which LSD was synthesized by Hoffmann himself in 1938. Uh, but there's all these other alkaloids swimming in, in, in that ergot. So uh, the theory is that the Greeks figured out some way to isolate some kind of visionary alkaloid. And we still don't know which one, but it raises the bigger question, like where did this come from? The idea of spiking beers and how old is beer? And the, the basic question is that beer could be 12 or 13,000 years old, if, if not older. And so I talked to Zarnkow there in Germany about analysis he'd done at Gobekli Tepe, this megalithic site 
uh, in southern Turkey on the border with Syria, uh, which um, yielded the, these trace elements of calcium oxalate, which is the, the, the biomarker for fermentation. So, uh, you know, the results are still mixed, but we have a pretty good idea that beer was fermenting both at Gobekli Tepe and at the Rockefeller Cave in Israel, like 12, 13,000 years ago, which which is crazy because if, if you're brewing beer at that time, it's very possible that, that we develop this relationship with grain, uh, not, not to bake bread, not to eat it, but to drink it, to drink the crop instead of eat it, which raises big questions like why are you drinking your crop? And you know, it, it lends beer this altogether much more sacramental overtone to it. If you're, if, if you're drinking it up, it must've been for a reason. And part of the reason we think was to commune with the dead, to make contact with the ancestors. Yeah, no no beer like we're used to, right? This is a, as you're saying, the, the I mean, compare it. I mean, are we talking about an LSD-like experience or a psilocybin-like experience? Is that what they were doing? I think LSD-like is a fair description with the proviso that the chemistry is extraordinarily complicated. Uh, it would not have been impossible for some kind of ergotized beverage under the right circumstances to yield an LSD-like kind of beer. Now, we, ha we haven't found evidence for ergotized beer that far back, but I did find this archaeobotanical hit for ergotized beer in the second century BC. And that in and of itself is kind of a big, a big breakthrough. I mean, the breakthrough that folks interested in this hypothesis have been looking for for decades. You talked a lot about that, the smoking gun. That right. kind of at your hand, you were, you were really at least t poking around in a lot of smoking guns. It's that's a feat that you should put on a plaque or something. I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> worthy well, of fourteen PhDs. Exactly, exactly. No, but it's. A, I'll, I'll introduce it this way. It's another hum, very human story. You know, so you have this guy Carl Ruck, who was just a couple years older than me when he releases this crazy hypothesis in 1978. There's no scientific data to support it. You know, he had this really promising career that essentially nosedives, and he's not well liked on campus by the president at BU or, or by his colleagues. And he just kind of, you know, he wrestles himself in, into the, the, this corner. Um, and then at the same time, looking at, the, at this archaeobotany and archaeochemistry, again, it's a relatively young discipline. It's hard to find a career in this stuff. It's hard to get paid to do it properly. And uh, another interesting part of the, of the story is that there was this archaeobotanist and archaeologist, this team in the 90s, who uncovers th this incredible data. I mean, the first uh, real compelling scientific data for the use of an ergotized beer. I mean, exactly as was hypothesized in 1978. It's dug up in the 90s and published in Spanish and Catalan, but because it's not like widely reported to the academic community, it just sits. It sits in this... Uh, 600 and some page monograph in Catalan in the Library of Congress, which is where I find it a couple of years ago. And it's, it's stuck in these journals from the year 2000. And it's just not widely discussed. And, and here this whole time, uh, Enrique Tapons, the archaeologist, and Jordi Treserras, this wonderful archaeobotanist, they, they discovered, I mean, the, the, the unthinkable which is the use of ergotized beer at a very Greek sanctuary by people who are very influenced by very Greek mystery religions. And, and all the data is there to support this, the, this old crazy idea. Well, take us through what you think was happening because we're, we're just to plot us on a timeline. We're talking about, I guess, 10 or 12,000 BC. 
And uh, when does wine come on the scene? Just so I can kind of set this up. Right. I've jumped. I've jumped about twelve thousand years for no reason. So we we it's were okay. talking about Gobekli Tepe and the Rockefeller Cave in Israel, twelve to thirteen thousand years ago. Yes. This is in you know deep prehistory um, at the at the you know the the paleo when the Paleolithic becomes the Neolithic. And then during the Neolithic, for the thousands and thousands of years after that, we really don't know. We don't have a lot of really hard hits for, for, for beer and wine. Um, if beer is that old, the first, the first in, in Eurasia, the first data we see for, for wine is about 6,000 BC. Uh, and then you see different resonated wines uh, that Pat McGovern talks about in like 5,400 to 5,000 BC. So we have hits around then. It seems to me that beer might be older. Wine comes on the scene a bit later, but doesn't really become the cultural thing that it is until like after the Canaanites and Phoenicians, when there's, there's a better wine trade and this stuff. And then certainly by like the classical period, fifth, fourth centuries BC, all the countries that today you associate with wine are becoming those, those wine nations. So Greece and Italy, for example. But before then, uh, it was largely beer. Europe was largely flooded with, with beer. So paint the picture of these uh, rituals that folks were using this beer for? So we, I mean, I use Eleusis as the center point because you can, you can look backwards in time and you find striking similarities at Gobekli Tepe, right? Um, separated by thousands of years, by the way, which is, which is a crazy idea. I mean, it's not a point-to-point -point correspondence, right. but at Gobekli Tepe, it's a pilgrimage site. So people don't live there. It's this giant many ton megalithic architecture that's set up for some reason, but people don't live there. They make a pilgrimage to this site. There seems to be a beer that was being brewed and there seems to be a skull cult, a cult dedicated to the veneration of the ancestors where the living and dead are interacting. And again, the grain uh, and the beer seem very central to that. Fast forward thousands and thousands of years and we have Eleusis, which is not some random cult. It was uh, the most famous mystery cult. Of the, of the ancient world. It survived for 2000 years from 1500 BC to the fourth century AD, caused to all these luminaries that I mentioned like Plato and Pindar and Sophocles and the same kind of thing. A pilgrimage is made from Athens to Eleusis about 13 miles Northwest of the capital. Grain is central. The entire thing is dedicated to Demeter and Persephone. Mm. Demeter, the goddess of the grain, Persephone, her daughter, who's abducted into the underworld. Uh, there's a notion of confronting death. There's a notion of the living interacting with the dead. Uh, ghosts and spirits are reported in Demeter's temple. And again, a sacrament. I mean, so, I mean, just in the abstract, there's all these weird correspondences and the beer or some beer-like type sacrament seems to be central to it. But I mean, the, the main point is that people went to Eleusis to become gods and goddesses. They went there to become immortal. And so the big question is, what did the sacrament have to do with it? Well, and this took a long time, uh, meaning the initiation, right? It was something that you prepared for. It was it was a tradition that was based in kind of an apprenticeship model where you were prepared, and you know you had your Mister Miyagi who was teaching you how to wash, you know, paint the fence and wash the car and all that stuff, right? You were waxing on and waxing yeah. off for <laughs> okay. months, months. Like, what the hell is this? You're like, about? God damn it! I just want to hit somebody, man. <laughs> <laughs> just give me a shot of beer. <laughs> You would know you'd wax off for 18 months. I mean, yeah. potentially. And there, there were lesser mysteries and greater mysteries. But the thing I always liked about Eleusis is that it was a once in a lifetime event. Mm. Go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and why I had this light bulb moment 
with the experiments at Hopkins because it's a once in a lifetime event, one and only dose of psilocybin. People walk away describing it as like the most significant event of their lives. Eleusis was the same damn thing. You'd go there once in your life, typically later in life, you would prepare for a very long time, uh, at least six months, maybe as much as 18 months or longer. You'd make this giant pilgrimage. The whole affair lasted nine days and nights. At some point you were exhausted and parched and starving. Here comes this sacrament and, and out results the beatific vision. This is exactly what Carl Kadenyi talked about. This is, there was a beatific vision. He consciously borrowed that phrase from Christianity because there's very little language that can better capture what happened to these initiates and what the Greeks actually thought about Eleusis, which not to bury the lead, I've, I've been referring to as like the real religion of mm -hmm. the people who drafted the blueprints of Western civilization. This is what they did. This is how they found meaning. They didn't think the gods were running around like hurling thunderbolts around or Poseidon was standing in the sea with a trident. I mean, they were more Jungian in their approach to these archetypal characters. These, these people were geniuses and skeptical. God, it's, uh, two threads. Number one, how have, <laughs> no easy question here, Brian, how have we uh, become so disconnected from the, the kind of symbolic understanding? We, we are a culture of literalists and, and like, what's your theory here? Like, when did we lose the path and, and forget that what these stories are communicating is something, something deeper and more symbolic than a, a necessarily a literal truth? Yeah, um, Graham Hancock says that we're a species with amnesia. So you're, you're talking about forgetting. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been saying recently that we're, we're a species who doesn't study the classics. I mean, if you, yeah. uh, and, and including my, I got lucky. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for Latin and Greek. It came to me in this weird way and it stayed with me in this weird way and called me into this weird relationship with it. But, but in there is the original intent, right? You know, one of these originalists, um, my, my legal mind is thinking about the original construction of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, uh, uh, we live in a big country in the U.S. I mean, how many people stop every day to open up the Constitution? How much of a better uh, a society would we have if people were walking around with a Constitution in their pocket and, and these great ideals? I mean, for, for me, reading the ancient sources is like reading the Constitution. Uh, um, when it comes to the mysteries, we don't have the, the best testimony. We have, you know, bits and clues about what was happening. But the second you start to look, you, you're, you're seeing the, these, these ecstatic visionary experiences. Nietzsche picked up on this. He writes about the Dionysian mysteries. Uh, the ecstasy wasn't lost on him and all the, these, these great philosophers in more recent memory. But I mean, with each generation, we're losing more and more of the mystery. We're losing more and more of the Latin and Greek, which aren't really respected, even within the academy. I quote this great book about the, the death of classical education, who killed Homer. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's melodramatic and, a, and it bemoans the loss of all this classical scholarship, but it's also true. I mean, when I sit down and I talk to Ruck, who's 85 years old, I was just talking to my wife about this. I mean, uh, and you should meet him. When you talk to this guy, it's, you know, <laughs> extemporaneously, he opens his mouth and talks and it's like he's reading an audiobook. I mean, his 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 diction is so precise <laughs> that his his word choice it just it boggles your mind. And it's just how he talks. And I think it's reflective of a very different generation that was just hyper educated in this stuff. And you know that is decidedly not our discourse today. Well, it's not because we've we're not even remotely connected with the root. 
th- there's something so important about that. that we're, there is, it's, it's an interesting thing that Jung was talking about when he almost went into a total psychosis where he was questioning how there was no myth. He, he didn't have a myth. And mm. to not have that, whether it's the, the myth of the ancestors, uh, how we relate to our lineage, or, or this, you know, a personal myth, we, our myth currently is, I think, technology and money. And mm. I, I, I find that one of the issues with our culture, here's my cultural critique, of course, is like windows and light bulbs, which I'm quite fond of, you know. But as soon as we separated ourselves from natural elements, and even back to Genesis, something happened when we started to transcend reality in service of getting out of whatever's going on, whether it's getting out of the cold or getting out of the dark, mm. or what I think is a thread we need to pick up on eventually is um, medicine and the way that we uh, approach the pharmacology today and how that is such a commodified endeavor that mm. uh, after reading your book, it's you know it's been going on for millennia that, that the powers that be have been trying to um, restrict the uses of nature and our connection with nature for very nefarious reasons, I think, unfortunately, whether it's conscious or not. Mm. So, uh, Lucius, would, would you kind of talk about that ritual and what was happening in the apprenticeship and what people mm. would experience when they're there? Sure. Uh, again, we're, we're, we're only piecing together as much as we can and not to bury another lead, but when it comes to the, to the ancient world, uh, there are legitimate scholars who look at this and say that what we think what remains to us is about 1% of the total output of classical antiquity. And when it comes to the mysteries, you're talking about a fraction of a fraction of that 1% because it was all secret. So you know, I mentioned this, this procession from Athens to Eleusis. I mentioned this, this all-night festival, the Banuchia, when you're in this temple surrounded by, we think about 3,000 fellow initiates, there is a hierophant there doing something. There are priestesses mixing something. We did find lots and lots of, of, of chalices, the, these, these kernoi vessels excavated on site. So we know something was being drunk. Right. We know that something is happening. We can't piece together uh, sequentially what exactly it was, but we know the end goal. And the end goal was that you became immortal. And Aristotle, for example, said that initiates didn't go there to learn something, mathain, where we get mathematics, but they went there to experience something, bathain. Mm. So even if you were reading and under the direction of a mystagogue or a, you know, a, a guide, a counselor for months and months in advance, by the time you got there, it wasn't book learning. Uh, there, there was something else going on. It was true philosophy. As Plato would, would later say, for example, uh, he says that uh, anyone who practices philosophy in the right way is doing nothing else but dying and being dead, right? And you, you see this concept that again and again in my book of dying and being dead and practicing death and the dying process. It was, uh, the Greeks were obsessed with this and it wasn't just the mysteries. It were, it, there were other techniques, meditative techniques and these techniques of incubation that I talk about, essentially laying down dead in, in a cave or, or a subterranean chamber, sometimes for, for days on end, until you in the underworld would have that, uh, that encounter with the goddess. And today we call it the subconscious and your profession, you know, you're, you're, you're mapping out the landscape of that underworld. But to the Greeks, it was real. They were also experimenting. They were also interested in all the things that Jung was interested in. Mm-hmm. And, and they dedicated their time to really practicing it and perfecting it as, as, as old as Pythagoras. 
then after him, all these pre-Socratics like Parmenides and Pedocles. I mean, for centuries and centuries, this is what the Greeks did. And, you know, now we teach high school mythology and expect that to, to sink in. But it's, it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's cartoonish, really. It's not what the Greeks did. It's not what they believed. What was it about the Greeks that, that facilitated this philosophical and religious worldview? If you ask Peter Kingsley, I owe uh, Peter Kingsley full credit. He's just, a, he's an incredible scholar and a hero of mine. He's written a few books on this, um, all of which are, are worthwhile. He talks about these techniques being inherited from the Phocaeans. Mm -hmm. And the Phocaeans were there in Ionia, in the Eastern uh, Aegean. Uh, so today in modern day Turkey, uh, north of Ephesus. But the Phocaeans, which Kingsley calls the Vikings of antiquity, because of where they were, they were the inheritors of all these great traditions, right? I mean, from, from as far afield as the, the shamans and the steppes of Eurasia to these high civilizations, the Persians, Egyptians, etc. I mean, the Greeks took all these ideas and packaged them. I mean, there was no Greek miracle. This didn't happen from one night to the next. The Greeks inherited all this stuff just because of where they were and that marketplace of ideas in the Eastern Aegean. It's no coincidence that the first scientists come from that place too. If you ever watch Carl Sagan Cosmos, he talks a lot about the Ionians. Just Google Carl Sagan Ionians and you'll hear about Thales and Anaximander and all these people from the Eastern Aegean who are the same people who created the sciences that we take for granted today. I mean, things like the ruler and the lock and key and all this stuff. Those same people also dedicated equal attention to exploring the underworld. They were Jungians. I mean, they were really into this stuff. And, and they took it from there and they shipped it west to mainland Greece and especially Italy, which is why I spend so much time in Italy. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Christian church uh, finds its, its expression in Italy. I think it's all these ideas that were swimming in, in the south of the peninsula there. Is that a good point to jump into Dionysus? Sure. I, I, yeah. Well, one thing about the Greeks, my, you know, ignorant perspective, um, I imagine the Greeks to be that multidisciplinary culture. It was, it, it seems that it was very um, interwoven into the, just the life narrative that you really needed to have a lot of experience in different disciplines. Hmm. And, and that's, is that, is that correct? Am I right on saying that? I think that's fair to say. I mean, there were there were different schools, and and you know the traditions that come down to us are obviously from um, certain sectors of society, right? Uh, so, but the schools that come down to us, all these philosophical schools, yeah, I think it's it's fair to say. I mean, if, when you think of the Platonic Academy, for example, and when you think of the attempt to recreate that in during the Renaissance in Italy, the multidisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity. Is, is the whole motto, really. The, and there, there was no real distinction between religion and science. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's rough territory these days, religion and science <laughs> being related. <laughs> well, so um, t tell me why it is not uh, uh, far-reaching to call, uh, maybe you would call Christ a Dionysus figure. That's a safe, right. safe territory, right? A Dionysus figure, absolutely, because some of the greatest biblical scholars say that. I mean, so this is, I, I spend a few chapters in the book talking and piecing through a great book that was written recently by Dennis McDonald uh, called The Dionysian Gospel for a very good reason, because uh, it's, it's referring the Gospel of, of John, which we've always known was the weird gospel, apart from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when you're reading John, and specifically 
reading the Greek of John, what you're reading about is a very Dionysian figure, the kind of figure that, that Nietzsche would have spotted from, from a mile away. It, it's, it, it's a guy introducing wine mysteries to people um, and introducing an immortality potion that is supposed to make you an immortal. Uh, the same in, in the same vein that we see in Eleusis, by the way. Here's yet another immortality potion. It wasn't beer, it was wine. For centuries and centuries, we don't know much about the mysteries of Dionysus, but we do know that it's largely led by, by women. We do know there are these wine mixing ceremonies, and we do know the whole point of it, if you read Euripides the Bacchae, for example, uh, from the late 5th century BC, the whole point is to achieve communion with the god. And we have ancient Greek sources who refer uh, to that wine as the Haimabachiu, the blood of Dionysus, you know, uh, centuries before Jesus. So here comes Jesus. His very first miracle in John, unlike the other gospels, is this famous water to wine miracle. That's something that would have been patently obvious to the, the Greek listeners at the time as a Dionysian miracle. In fact, there are scholars who refer to that as a signature miracle. Of Dionysus, like in, in Greece, in the district of Elis on the western Peloponnese, there was an annual tradition of taking these basins of water into the Dionysian temple on January 5th, coming back the next day and finding them miraculously transformed to wine. And so when John does this whole wedding at Cana scene, he's saying that, you know, Jesus is here unveiling his godhood in a way the Greeks certainly could have understood. But again, the whole point of the Dionysian miracle is to become one. So the wedding at Cana is a precursor for the Last Supper, which uh, I've had fun debating recently, uh, was, was uh, far from a Jewish Passover, and again, reeks of these Greek pagan mysteries. And the language in John is very explicit about that. I would get my Bible here and read from it, but the, the uh, John 6, 53 to 56, that was oh, the one. Oh, man, you got it. I passed the test, good. That's it. So, uh, yeah, get into that, because what I when I had a kind of head flip was you were sitting at the bar with Father Francis and you were quoting this and feeling nervous about getting into it. But he says something that was very interesting about that John was actually signifying something. He was talking to to people using symbols. We talk about that for a bit. I've been I've been saying recently uh, it's it is impossible it is impossible to understand the roots of Christianity without knowing the Greek and without reading the Greek of John's gospel and the others and without understanding the world in which it came about we think that John is writing to the Ephesians uh, so just south of of the of Phocaia, those those mystical Phocaians I was talking about uh, who who brought all these uh, all these traditions to to the West. So there in Ephesus, in Ionia, in this same marketplace of ideas, John is writing to people who knew about the mysteries and may have practiced the mysteries them, themselves. John's is the last gospel at the end of the first century AD. Uh, and it's, it's very, very different for a reason. I think that he's, he's trying to communicate to Greek speakers on terms they would understand. And, and so he does, after a whole gospel of all this Dionysian imagery and the water to wine, and it's only in John that you see the Lamb of God, it's only in John that you see the true vine, and all this very, you know, vinous Dionysian imagery, you get to what I call the key to the Christian mysteries in, in the sixth chapter of John. Um, now, there are lots of different denominations of Christianity today, but I think it's pretty clear from John's gospel that there is a formula that Jesus lays out if you want to be a Christian. And it's not about praying to Jesus. It's not about accepting him as your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus 
asks us in the sixth chapter to do something very specific. He asks us to drink his blood. And again, that is not, uh, that's not, uh, it's, it's not metaphorical, right? By the doctrine of transubstantiation in the, in the Catholic church, it's a very, very literal process of the wine becoming blood and guzzling that for a reason. And in Greek, what John says in, in 653 is, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life uh, in the present tense, not will have an afterlife, mm -hmm. but has eternal life. So if you drink my blood right here, right now, the kingdom of heaven is open to you. And it's very, very evocative of what was happening in the Dionysian mysteries. The word John uses there for eat my flesh is trogon. And it's the only place in the gospels, at least in, in the Eucharistic accounts where you find that word. And it's, it, it doesn't mean to eat, it means to munch and to chew the, the way that you would rip flesh from a bloody carcass. And it's the same imagery you see in, in the language of Euripides, when these women are out like tackling these sacrificial animal, animals and rending them bit by bit with blood flowing everywhere, th there was the idea that blood was this sacramental vehicle of the God, the Lamb of God, right? And uh, when, so when Jesus uses that word, it's, it's, it's a conscious, I believe, a conscious throwback to all this pagan imagery. And what I use for proof is what follows this in John 660, when the Jewish people who are assembled listening to this crazy idea about drinking blood, they say, what the hell are you talking about? Basically, in Greek, they say, ke, ke, skleros, what a skleros this is. Like, this makes no sense. It's gross. It's difficult to understand. We have no idea. What you're, this isn't Jewish. This ain't Jewish. There's something very Greek, very pagan, and very mystical happening there. So is this what you were talking about with goat blood? Yes. I, I did have a I, I have a dear friend of mine who's a priest, and he tends to be my resource for any kind of information on Christianity. And I, I haven't ever really understood the Lamb of God. Hmm. It, are you connecting the Lamb of God with the goat? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so, so but we're talking about literal goat blood that somebody is drinking. Well, as far as we can tell, right? So if you look, we don't, again, we don't have many clues. It's like the mysteries of Eleusis. When you're talking about the mysteries of Dionysus, we, we work with what we have. And what we have is Euripides the Bacchae. And in there, you know, it's not the first time that you hear this notion of blood being sacramental and this sacrificial animal. So in, in the Dionysian tradition, it's these goats. You see lots of goats in pagan imagery. And these are the same goats who give birth to all, you know, all the, all the, to Pan, mm -hmm. for example and all these satyrs and all these goatmen and all and the, the goatmen from Narnia. I mean, you, you see all these, all these goaty things because there were goats, we think. They're portrayed in Euripides and we think in real life too. And in Euripides, he refers to feasting on the flesh and the blood of the, the goat sacrifice as the omophaon charin. It's the same root that we get for Eucharist, charis, charis. It's, it's the, the, that glad meal, the Thanksgiving meal of raw flesh. The, 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 this idea in Greek is that the raw flesh and blood of the goat and other animals was Dionysus. It's how Dionysus expressed his form. And again, it's weird that only in John, you see a very similar idea of the Lamb of God. It's only in John you hear about this Lamb of God, another conscious throwback to this goat, the blood, and the, the, the primordial Eucharist that was supposed to be this immortality potion. Well, you referenced Joseph Campbell earlier, and a thought comes to mind about something he said, which was we 
not all of us, but most of the world eats meat. And what he was referencing is how we eat meat, yet we don't want to remember that something dies for it to get here. And so we're, we're at such a, again, windows and uh, light bulbs, we're at a distance from the direct experience. And so when I have a piece of meat that's wrapped in cellophane and that has food coloring to make sure it looks the right way for me, I'm, I'm utterly disconnected from the real process. And most individuals, I think, don't want to contemplate the death of their hamburger. They, you know, mm. they don't want to imagine that. And so we have to separate that out. And I'm just wondering about a different kind of worldview that actually participates, not just in the direct experience of God, but the direct experience of their experience. The direct mm-hmm. experience of if I'm going to have food, I'm going to go get it or kill it or, you know, and that is something pretty powerful. That's interesting. Yeah, the so, uh, Joe, uh, he says things like um, all life feeds on life. Mm-hmm. And there's the, this, cra- this crazy uh, metaphysical proposition of, of the guilt, the blood guilt yeah. that comes along with that. And then Walter Burkert writes a whole book on this called Homo Neckans. Walter Burkert is the, the, this gold standard classicist, uh, this German uh, who writes a, a lot of wonderful things, including speculation on drugs. But he writes in Homo Neckans about the blood of Dionysus. I just I want to read uh, a quick quote to make sure I get it right. But he says that the blood of Dionysus is represented in the sacramental drinking of the wine. The drinker of the Dionysian wine would be drinking the God himself. Now, you know, to any classicist, it's kind of, it's, it's almost self-evident, right? That to drink the blood of Dionysus is, is to, to drink this, this immortality potion. You can find it right there in Walter Burkert. Uh, it's again, that this whole, this whole idea of us being a species who doesn't read the classics. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to read a line like that and not think of Jesus and not think of all these, all these parallels that this stuff isn't lost on the classicists. It's just not communicated very well to the rest of us that there are these very strong parallels there. And I think that, I think we forget the world into which Jesus was born. And I think we forget mm-hmm. like very basic questions, like, like how this carpenter's son from Galilee became the most famous human being who ever existed and how the, this illegal cult could transform the Roman empire uh, in, in about 300 years. I mean, how did this stuff happen? Is it, was it just the, this reputation the Christians had for this charity and taking care of each other? Was it a great sermon? Was it great stories being passed down? I mean, Christianity came along and swept away the religion of the ancestors that had been there for millennia. Like, how did it do that? I'm not saying psychedelics were the answer, but th- there was a real felt presence. You know, Jesus was, was real to these people and drinking the Eucharist meant something to them, clearly because it, it, it survives in the shadows for centuries with no state support. How did it do that? The comment before we jump into that, because I think that's so important. When you when I read that about, you know, the vine and it, it was the, the God, it, you were partaking of the God, it made me think of the way that uh, shaman in South America relate to ayahuasca and they're partaking in the grandmother. And that's uh, from a... Their worldview is because it's a natural um, animistic tradition that envisions the the kind of world as holding God, you know, the wind and the trees and everything. You can partake of the God much easier than this uh, Christian worldview that has, you know, the God is separate. It's a dualistic tradition instead of a a kind of um, unified experience. And that is that 
what you're getting at of me because it seems to show up in more animistic. I'm, I'm sure Japan would have um, in Shinto in you know South America, we have these traditions where you're actually participating directly with the God as opposed to Christianity. Yeah, no, I th but, but I think it flows right into the classical tradition. I mean, beyond the, the shamanistic or animistic, I mean, I think th this, this was religion in the roots of Western civilization. And, and uh, you know, Fraser writes about this in the Golden Bowl mm. at the end of the 19th century, this idea of, of theophagy, eating the God to become the God, drinking the God to become the God. It's, it's been retained to this day in other cultures. Um, and, you know, in Mexico, the, the, the sacrament is known as the flesh of the gods. Uh, these, these, these mushrooms are known as the flesh of the gods. And in the Native American church, the idea that the body of Christ is resident in, in the peyote, um, I reference literature from the early 20th century about that. Uh, I mean, they retain it, but I think it was also there before we forgot it mm -hmm. in, in Western civilization. It was so old that it flowed through the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and into the Holy Land. And uh, I don't think it would have been lost on, on the Greek speakers of the time. The, these wine gods uh, lived and breathed for them from Osiris to El to Dionysus to Jesus. There's this continuity there where to, to, to consume the natural products of the earth was nothing less than a religious experience, that that's how you found communion with these people. Which is scary to an organized tradition. So what we were talking about is how did Rome, how did Rome kind of help Christianity become the one of the largest traditions ever, and I, you, a number of times in the book you referenced the um, the shadow side of the organized mm. tradition, which uh, women and drugs. Right, and is that I would assume that's part of this that they're fighting against a tradition that says the divine is found within you. You don't have to go anywhere else. Just just go inside of yourself. And they say, oh shit, you know. Um, I, well, some of my research when I was um, when I was working on my dissertation was looking at, you know, the ways that you achieved fame in Rome was either through the Senate or through war, and mm. both of them in service to Rome. And 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 you'll be if you were doing anything in service to yourself, you know, you were kicked out of the camp. But if you were doing it in service to Rome, you're you're good, uh, even if you're making yourself wealthy, as long as you're saying I'm doing this for Rome. So obviously there's a tension that's held between this. You don't have to, you know, salvation is not found in Rome. It's found within you. And they say, hang on. So mm -hmm. that's one of the, it, that's it, right? That, that, that tension, they start saying, hang on, we can't have these people that are doing that. So we got to start adopting their traditions. Yeah. That, that, I think that that's, that that's the surface reading. And we, we have to start there because it's the, the politics are so obvious. I mean, in the same way that it, it's hard to understand the origins of the faith without looking at the Greek, I think it, it's hard to understand how the church becomes the church without looking at the power structure of the Roman empire. I mean, it's no coincidence that you have one all male enterprise following another all male enterprise, you know, the, the popes and cardinals and bishops just stepped into the role of, of the emperors and, and the male administration of the Roman Empire. It's just, I mean, it's, you know, it wasn't fun to be a woman at, at that time, neither in Greece nor, nor in Rome. So we should not be surprised that women were not given the power of consecration, which is extraordinarily important, by the way. Yeah. You know, the, the, this idea of being able to consecrate that, that, that bread and wine into the flesh and blood, it's, it's everything. It's everything. I mean, that, that is the thing that's essential to salvation as any good Catholic boy 
uh, would, would quote Pope Francis. He called this, this stuff is essential. It is the Eucharist and nothing else. I mean, that is the pipeline, right? That is the lived presence of Jesus. And the evidence is that women were consecrating the wine within certain communities until it wasn't quite favored by the, by the power structures. I went into all these catacombs under Rome, looking at these frescoes of women mixing wine in this weird hybrid pagan Christian ceremony called the refrigerium, another indication of the living interacting with the dead. It was this, this uh, very common pagan rite of going into a catacomb and serving some wine to your dead ancestors, basically. I mean, it reminds me of like the Day of the Dead ceremonies in Mexico, picnicking in the graveyards. I mean, the Romans were doing this and the Christians were doing it too. And Ramsey McMullen at Yale writes a lot about this. There were Christianized refrigeria where you're consuming some kind of sacramental wine in these catacombs. And you see women again and again in all these Catholic catacombs controlled by the Vatican, mixing up this wine. And if you look at the literature, you hear, you hear the same thing. If you read Hippolytus, if you read his Greek, you'll hear about Gnostic communities in which women are participating in the consecration of the Eucharist. And it's, it's considered totally heretical. And so we know the Gnostics are suppressed and we know their, their books aren't included in the canonical New Testament. And that, that's what happens. Uh, you know, part of it is just the relationship between men and women 1700 years ago, 1600 years ago. Uh, you know, the world's a different place today. It's, mm -hmm. it's probably worthy of, of a reassessment of, of who gets to handle these sacred substances. Well, because the, the, you're, you spend a lot of time tending to the role of women in these rituals. And I, I ordered the book, When Women Were Priests, because I, mm. I, uh, I, I looked at my wife once we were on a walk, and my wife is an acupuncturist, and so she's, uh, you know, she has tinctures and herbs, and she puts needles in people's bodies. And I was like, hey, I figured something out. You're a witch. And she, <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, what the fuck? Yep. But I meant it from this kind of tradition. She is totally connected with chemistry. She's very interested in botany. She has memorized all of the herbs in the Chinese world view. It's, and again, she sticks needles into people's bodies and gives them herbs in order for them to get better. And hmm. what I, something very interesting, not only looking at, of course, the church's um, persecution of women, but you, you contextualize that for me in a really important way, looking at mother and daughter um, hmm. lineages of who, who, who's connected with nature, who's connected with the plants, and who's brewing this wine for the the um, sac or the sacramental wine, and and why would you explain and talk a little bit about the role of women there and why the church had to intervene so much? What'd you discover? Yeah, I mean, I honestly didn't write it to 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 write that aspect of it, but the more you read about ancient beer and ancient wine, you're you're bumping up against women. So the, this guy Martin Zonkal. Uh, I mentioned it in Germany, uh, as far back as, as we can tell, the gathering of herbs and the brewing of this beer, which had this religious sentimentality to it, was the women's trade. It was the women's craft. It's not until the industrialization of brewing um, in the Reformation that things begin to change. I mean, for, for the longest time, and today even, in traditional societies, it's the women who do the gathering and do the mixing and do the cooking uh, and the brewing of, of things like sacramental beer. And it's the same with wine. If you're looking at ancient Greek 
vases like I was at the Louvre, what you're seeing are women mixing ingredients into wine. And when you're reading these stories about the cult of Dionysus, you're reading about women. It was women who were in charge of these rites. And in Italy, it's no surprise in 186 BC that as many as 6,000 followers of Dionysus, of Bacchus, were exterminated by the Roman Senate that you mentioned. Uh, the, this, this, this male enterprise wasn't too happy with the idea of women initiating young impressionable men into a cult that drove you out of your mind. Not because alcohol was involved, a word that the Greeks and Romans didn't have a word for, but because there were these potions of people uh, becoming mad and achieving communion, right? That, 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 that meant they were not dependent on the power structure of Rome. They didn't, they didn't have to give obeisance to the cult of the emperor, which was a pretty important thing at the time. Now here comes Jesus, and, and it's a very similar proposition. It's a religion that called uh, to women. It's a, a religion that, that called to, to the, the marginalized, and still does, by the way, which is one of the great calls of, of, of Christianity that I think that we forget, and which explains the social justice mission of the, of the Jesuits, for example. Yeah. I mean, the, the religion was very different in its roots, and it was largely female-led, just like the other mystery traditions that, that preceded for millennia. I'm on the board of the Young Center down here, and you know the Young Center was formed by women, huh? It, w women who were involved in asking deeper questions and wanting to bring a space to Houston, mm -hmm. and uh, so you see that in certainly in social justice. But think about these nonprofits that are so led by um, by, by that essence that tends to get housed in the feminine, which is you know nurturing. I'm mm. holding a container, holding the space, mm. creating an opportunity for people to come and be receptive. These are all very feminine characteristics, at least traditionally speaking. So it mm. certainly makes a lot of sense that we can look and see that even current day about the roles that women play, even in a culture that's, you know, patriarchal. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of our time, and I want to be conscientious to yours. Um, <laughs> call it, how much time do we have? We have at least... 39 minutes, JP. Oh, okay, cool. We're, well, we're okay. We're good. Okay, good. Because I, 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 um, okay, so to jump in, when we talk about women, we have to talk about witches. And I learned probably more about that movement in reading your book than I had before. And not as if I've turned that stone over, which are stones I really desire to turn over. Will you, will you talk us through this, um, the, the witches that were then and how they come to, came to be the lizard stewing, hat wearing, brew making, you know, Halloween symbols? That's a, that's a great question. So uh, a lot of the, the psychedelic witch research I was doing is, is influenced by a friend of mine, Tom Hatzis, who, who's a great researcher. Uh, other books worth worth adding to to your shelves. Thank you. Um, so he he writes about the early modern period quite a bit, uh, and really blew me away the the association between women and drugs. Uh, it, it wasn't just at the beginnings of of the church, and I pointed to Hippolytus, for example, this church father, talking about uh, these group of, of Gnostics, the the followers of Marcus, who were mixing pharmakon, the Greek word for drug, into their wine. I mean, Hippolytus uses that word seven times in a row to make very clear that women and drugs have something to do with this, with this heresy. Uh, and to put everything in context, uh, I went out of my way to find some hard scientific data for some of that spiked wine and actually found it. 
um, in chapter 15 of my book, I talk about this, this ancient pharmacy outside Pompeii, the Villa Vesuvio. And at the Villa Vesuvio, confidently dated to 79 AD, after the eruption of Vesuvius, there was this incredible find from, again, from the 90s, which largely went underreported about this, this, this crazy wine that seemed to have been spiked with opium and cannabis and henbane and black nightshade, all this very witchy stuff. And in addition, there were something like 60 fragments of lizard bones. I mean, this was not like your average table wine. This was, this was weird stuff. And so it's even weirder that you find echoes of that kind of potion. And, and that potion, by the way, I think, is some of the very first hard data for quote unquote psychedelic wine in classical antiquity. I mean, it's there, underreported, and I, th I think it's, it's ripe for more investigation and more conversation. But in any way, I use that as a data point to then go into the last two chapters of the book and all these witches. Because when you think about witches, again, it's, it's this, this sense of their pharmakeia, their, their, their witchcraft was very drug-based uh, to the point where one of the Pope's personal physicians, um, Andres Laguna, is, is writing in the 16th century, in the mid 16th century, about the, the witch's ointment, right? And he postulates that the witch's ointment, this green ointment, is some kind of magical substance that was spiked with the same kind of things I found in the first century AD, spiked with henbane and spiked with black nightshade. And in addition, some kind of mandrake or hemlock and all these toxins and poisons. I mean, this pharmacological knowledge seems to have survived a very long time until the Inquisition basically stamps it out. Ah, and it hurts to think about all the, what was it again? Like of the amount of plays that were written by Greek playwrights, how, how, what, what's the, it's like 2%, right? It's, we have very little, correct? It's 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 a it's a fraction. Yeah, it's a fraction. I said that it was one percent of all classical literature. It's it's a handful of the tragedies has have survived from Euripides, Sophocles, etc. Yeah, and so now we, I, I think just that uh, we can make some assumptions about the ways in which we're informed today, and how incomplete our our lineage really is. Like if if. You know, thinking about as a psychotherapist, I think about how often people are talking about, you know, this is my family, this is how I grew up, this is who I am. And so we define ourselves kind of in that system. What happens to a culture when we can't do that? You know, there, mm. There's so much richness that's lost throughout time that, that you know, you, of course, have spent <laughs> many hours at this point weeding through all kinds of uh, databases that are off limits to others who don't speak Italian and Greek, I guess. But I mean, does that just drive you mad? Like, I, I, I'm I'm not even in that space, and it drives me mad. You're kind of in it and consistently beholden to that. That that's why I couldn't put this down because every time I turned a new corner and, and came upon a new clue, it would, it would drive me mad that these dots <laughs> couldn't be connected. Man, it's I mean, it's it's hard to get into these archives. It's hard to read uh, 16th century Italian. Uh, it's it's hard to report and talk about this stuff, but I mean, what's what's clear is that we had a sacred pharmacopoeia. I mean, when you think about you know plant medicine today, you think about uh, I mean ayahuasca tourism, or you think about peyote, or you think about things that are not at the roots of of, of Western European civilization. I mean, all the evidence is that we had something, and that you know this 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 tradition largely oral 
from mother to daughter yeah. was at some point lost. The Inquisition certainly played a part in that, and and I and I and I trace you know other campaigns that were led uh, by the Catholic Church in Mexico, for example, to get rid of the of the of the sacraments there um, in in recent centuries. And again and again, you see this 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 weird relationship uh, between power structures and then. Uh, drugs and drugs associated with women, specifically, on 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 the other hand, and so it's it's a story and it's just a basic blind spot in in scholarship that I, I was hoping to kind of shore up. I'm so glad you did. There, I mean, just <laughs> truly like to to lose connection with. I mean, we're we're cutting out half of our knowledge systems by moving women out of the conversation. I, I I think that's so tragic, and I, just looking at my my wife is such a beautiful soul, you know. Like she's so intuitive, and sometimes I feel like a buffoon. I'm like, how that you're so brilliant, you know? Like you're intuitive, and how you said that, I love it. Thank you. I'm like, holy shit! Like if we multiply that and put it throughout all of time, we're lacking in so much intuitive knowledge from women. Like what the fuck. <laughs> Just a bunch of buffoons. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I can be I can be uh, solid every now and then, but but I I just think in it's complementary. Yeah. It, it's it's integrated, and yeah. for us to cut off and amputate a part of ourselves, it's such a great disservice. And I look, there's a lot of stuff as as um, as a guy as uh, as an academic. You know, I think there are a lot of strengths that I bring with me that are inborn into my environment, certainly from my environment, but also from, you know, my biology, my genetics, my time of birth, all that. Uh, my wife is is a is a beautiful, intuitive and deep thinker. Mm. And, and that's I, I imagine these women in the forests who are you know dancing in the moonlight in ex these ecstatic visionary quests. I mean, God, I want access to that. Like, I want to be taught by that. I want to be informed by that. And and here in in history, the Inquisition just stamps it out. Uh, it's it, it seems that way. I mean, it doesn't it it doesn't enter the American colonies. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how to <laughs> what to no, say. I'm, I'm laughing at. I'm such a feeler. I'll say some shit that uh, I like. You're you're careful. It seems that way. It seems that way. I'm over here going, motherfuckers, you know, this is, you know, yeah, it does seem that way, but it's true. Well, the, it, point, well, just the point I want to make, but this, this is a good way to, to, to begin um, inching towards a denouement. But the, the, what, what's important, uh, and I want to say to you and to everybody, I've been trying to make this point, is that, you know, the, uh, this wasn't an anti-Catholic book. These, these, the, a lot of this is ancient history. A lot of this is the history of the Middle Ages. Um, you know, we are the products of, of our of our society and women, you know, again, it wasn't fun to be a woman in ancient yeah. Greece. It wasn't fun to be a woman in ancient Rome and apparently even less fun uh, in the Renaissance when there was burnings at the stakes and witch hunts, uh, etc. So uh, I think that we're moving past this. And part of the reason I included these details is a bit of truth and reconciliation, uh, which I think is an important an important process. I'm not saying that, you know, drugs and women were the secret right. uh, to all the mystical ecstasy of the past 2,000 to 20,000 years. I'm saying that they were an important part of it. We are complementary. 
if we put our brains together and our bodies together, we'd probably figure out a pretty, a pretty sustainable path to the future of organized religion. And so this is technology that I think can be leveraged by organized faith, including the Catholic Church. Um, you know, I don't know why this stuff goes missing. The Inquisition is part of it. The loss of generational knowledge uh, just naturally is another part of it. The mysteries dying under the weight of their own secrecy. I mean, this stuff doesn't lend itself well to, to the pulpit and to organized religion. I mean, these were secret sacraments and secret ceremonies that you couldn't talk about and couldn't pass on, but for word of mouth. I mean, that stuff is going to die. And the Inquisition didn't help, but this, this stuff does die. And whatever the hell happened, what we have now is a situation where sacred pharmacology is coming back. We have the tools of science to look into these containers and to look into the past and the manuscripts, by the way, which haven't been fully deciphered. I talk about Dioscorides, this ancient manuscript, and all the workings of Galen that have yet to be translated into English. There's so much there that we haven't explored. Uh, right. But you know, the proposition is that there was sacred pharmacology. It disappeared for various reasons. Now it's coming back. And what do we do with it? What, what happens to this stuff? I mean, just last week or the week before, uh, all drugs were decriminalized in Oregon. I mean, so this is a real and present conversation. Psilocybin is being regulated at the state level. It's the first jurisdiction in the world in which you'll have therapeutic access to psilocybin. I mean, this schedule one drug that's been vilified for a couple of generations. What do we do with this story? What do we do with, with a new myth that we could create? And, and, and how do these drugs play a part in them? Yeah, what do we do with this? Uh, and I, I read um, Joseph Tefer is a, is a shaman and a physician that I interviewed uh, a, a long time ago, about a couple of years ago. And he was talking about with the Western kind of scientific rational mind, taking ayahuasca into the laboratory is is not is not done. It's not practiced because it's a part of a religious framework, and and that's kind of what's going to be interesting to see. There's an aspect of that that's going to be an interesting to see how it plays out because whether it's Eleusis or you know uh, Peru with the Shipibo shaman or wherever in the world. To, to take it into a laboratory and to put it into pill form from a lot of these traditions, it's taking it out of the context that it really needs to be in, which goes to your exploration of the mysteries that, you know, the esoteric knowledge needs to be held and sheathed in this mystery. But at one point they're starting to say, no, I mean, it's for everybody. Like this mm. is the Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley, mm. you know, where Tim, Tim Leary's saying, like, drop it in the water supply. And Huxley's going, wait a second, like, this is like artists and, you know, kind of deep yeah. thinkers. So it, it, I, I guess it, it is going to be interesting to see how this plays out because our Western minds or the rational mind, whatever that means, is, is needing to um, commodify it, you know, to mm. encapsulate it. And, uh, and, and then we'll lose sight of, uh, I mean, I, there are probably enormous benefits when you get these scientific minds to really dig into these substances and figure out what can be done. Um, and there's also that purest part of me that uh, is nervous about losing sight of that process that we can go into. That's why I wrote a big book about it. Yeah, and you did well. <laughs> so, okay, I want to I wanna certainly hit... Uh, yeah, aware of time. So I want to hit the something I was very excited to 
talk to you about, which is I sent you the the letter that. Dante, oh yeah, now I'm intrigued. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I I, I that I, I found that and. I was really interested and come to find out there's an entire study of kind of these interpretive lenses that are used that, again, in my education, I didn't realize that a text like the Bible or anything, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at Peter Kingsley's book, Reality, that I that oh, blew my mind. And, and that's really the essence. Like my dissertation was really an exploration of using these interpretive lenses to help us understand our experience of reality. And that, I think, is what happens with a classicist, is that with that kind of knowledge, you're able to recognize the different modes of perception or knowledge that are operating simultaneously. Hmm. So was had you read that letter before? Had you connected with that? To be honest, no, not that yeah. I recall. For, for context, it's a letter that Dante wrote to uh, Con Grande la Scala, who is a nobleman in Italy, and and he was essentially saying on some level he was like hey can i have your money um here's the clue to how to read dante and what what he says basically is look there there are several different ways of reading the inferno one is the historic or the literal and the other is the symbolic and and the tropological is another term that's brought up in that what i took from it is that there are four modes of interpretation, um, historic, um, kind of more of a cognitive or thought-based. Then there's the moral, uh, tropological, and then there is the symbolic or anagogic, which tends to synthesize. Um, so that thread in your education about looking at religious texts and seeing them from the different levels that they present, I, well, let me... It, it comes up in the wine, you know, because as we were talking about wine, I was imagining somebody, um, uh, I was imagining somebody imagine that these women were brewing wine like you would find in Napa today, but that's not mm -hmm. the case. Mm. You know, we say wine and they're talking about a different substance altogether. And, and so, you know, whether it's grape juice or port or, you know, Napa wine or something much different, um, I, I think we do a disservice to ourselves when we don't recognize or dig into the different kind of levels of interpretation. So if you had your wish, how would you change modern education systems or how we learn what we learn? I'm going to edit question. the shit out of that, by the way. <laughs> 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 That's a great question. Uh, okay, so what I would do is I would introduce the power of myth and make it uh, mandatory viewing um, from as early as high school, probably. And I'd, I'd make it mandatory viewing once a semester from the age of 14 to about 44, uh, after which you're probably on your way to being prepared for the mystical experience that would make all previous seeing seem like blindness which is what the mysteries are supposed to be. Uh, but before that, you need the myth. I think Joseph Campbell, better than almost anybody, helps us to unpack the, the, these myths in the allegorical sense. And Dante, in his letter, 
right. is is writing about that in in the high middle ages at, at the time when these classical languages of greek and latin and he makes several references in that letter to the classical languages are becoming the vernaculars of his italian and what comes what comes later but he's sitting there between these two worlds but what was funny to me reading that letter is that it could have been written a thousand years earlier right. uh you know the neoplatonists uh were were the masters of allegory uh, I mentioned in the book, when I'm spelunking through the catacombs, I mentioned Plotinus from the third century. And he writes this massive six-part treatise called the Enneads. And he's not just interpreting the Bible, the New Testament. He's interpreting Homer as theology. And he mm-hmm. reads the, the, the Odyssey as, as the salvation of the soul. So it's not, it's not um, uh, Odysseus trying to make his way home to his long-suffering wife. It's us trying to achieve salvation. It, it's our soul looking looking for rest. I mean, that seems like a postmodern read right. of home. <laughs> you know, absolutely no, absolutely not. No, the, the Neoplatonists were there seventeen hundred years ago doing this, and well before them. I mean, there was a, a real Neopythagorean, Neoplatonic, very subtle allegorical reading of of this literature. I mean, to them, the the surface is 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 nothing. It was just right. an invitation into a deeper reflection. I mean, so the one thing I would say about, you know, reading this stuff is that nothing is as it seems. That, that was, the, I mean, the main, if you have to pack the whole lesson into one thing and, and Jesus talks about this, you know, nothing is as it seems, basically. And if, if you begin to question everything around you, and Peter Kingsley writes about this in reality, what you get to is the basis of consciousness itself. And what is the difference between you and me and you, me, and the cosmos? And where do we begin and, and the cosmos ends? I mean, once you begin to unpack all this stuff, which is textbook Platonism, textbook Platonism is don't take things at face value, then you begin to, to invest in the process of discovery which is nothing less than, than a religious process of finding those divine sparks in everyone and everything around you and realizing that, that you are coterminous with, with God, the being of beings is what Joseph Campbell would say. And the mystery of your being is the mystery of beings and the mystery of the cosmos itself. You are the thing the cosmos is doing. Um, that's, that's the goal here. Well, it's, when I, at one point I discovered Buddhism and it was really important for my own religious development because it was a contemplative it was a contemplative based tradition and in the christianity that i grew up with there was none of that hmm. and so when i found buddhism and i started meditating every day and you know really paying attention it was more of a psychological framework anyway it opened me up to religions all around and when i started reading peter kingsley and i started hmm. certainly reading through your book uh, and Jeff Kripal and others, it it has, I, I have realized that the kind of Western tradition does very much so have a contemplative depth aspect to it. And mm-hmm. that has been my experience. When, when I read Reality, I, essentially I wanted to do the dark retreat as soon as possible. A friend of mine's a Tibetan, uh, you know, not a monk, but he's close to it. And he's like, oh, we got that. We got that. We can put you up in a <laughs> room right. and you can sit That's for 10 right. days. And my wife's like, please, oh my God, he's going to crack. So, and <laughs> so, but we're seeing uh, this explosion of this uh, psychedelic exploration. And when you started writing this, it, it hadn't been there yet. You know, in 2007, it was still pretty concealed. 
despite the fact that this was happening back in the 50s and 60s, certainly, but it was really bubbling up on the scene. What are your thoughts about how this scene has just kind of erupted around you as you've been working on this for 12 years? Yeah, see, that that I can't explain. That yeah. I can't explain. It's you know, radical. You're going to fall that, into that that I... solipsism or something. You're going to like... <laughs> <you know. laughs> that, that I can't explain. Yeah, um, life imitating art. Yeah. That, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's, it's hard to explain. I mean... Um, I got involved in drug policy only because I saw the massive social injustices that were taking place. Uh, you know, so I don't I don't use drugs and have no particular interest today. But but the the way the the war on drugs was was set up is is killing communities and and communities of color, in particular, at a rate of four to one, for example, a person of color is likely to get arrested over their white counterparts for simple cannabis possession, which doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And when it comes to something like psilocybin. Uh, we know that there are there is therapeutic benefit out there um, that is just waiting to be unleashed for people with uh, anxiety, depression, and end of life distress. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the psychology of all that begins to bleed into the spirituality of it because there are these mystical experiences at the core of this stuff. And it started just as an idea 12 years ago, and now here we are. And we were talked just as of a couple weeks ago. You know, this this regulated system is going to place in in Oregon. I mean, out of what, which I never anticipated, to be quite honest, not this early. Right. And in a couple of years, the FDA will approve psilocybin and potentially other drugs for some of these clinical conditions. And then in five to 10 years, that, that's my big question mark is what happens then? Because again, one person's therapy is another, is another person's faith. You know, what happens mm -hmm. to someone at the end of life who, who wants to uh, experiment with psilocybin, for example? Is it just a medical professional who's administering it? Is it a, a priest or a pastor? Um, you know, so psychedelic chaplaincy is going to be a very big conversation mm -hmm. over the next several years. And we're getting to a place where kind of like the mysteries, you know, I sense all this tension and I understand the, you know, spiking the, the water system versus reserving this for the artists and intellectuals. I mean, both of which are false and contrary. And, and you know, there, there's a lot of paradox here. I think it, it's going to play itself out like a tree with all these different branches. And, you know, as long as we focus on safety and efficacy and resurrecting some of these lessons from the past, which are, I think, very instructive, I think we'll be, we'll be in good shape. I go back to that comment you made about uh, what Graham Hancock said about human beings and amnesia. You know, uh, Jim, when I interviewed Jim Hollis for the podcast, he said that he was contemplating the, the Gulf War and mm. uh, or Desert Storm. And he said, you know, if 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 the government would just read Thucydides, we would learn a lot because because we've been at this human project a long time. And it's likely that this is a pattern that's not new, except because we're such amnesiacs that we uh, we can't recognize the the what what Freud called the um, the repetition compulsion. Mm. You know, we're, we're, when we're unconscious, we are kind of destined to live out this re repetition motif. And collectively, we certainly do it. I'm just happy that we have a resurrection of these approaches that seem to be a lot healthier than uh, than they've been in recent times. So it seems that we're going at this in the right way. And I'm, I'm, I'm eager because, you know, Rick Doblin's talk, uh, TED Talk, you know, was laying out some data that, I mean, for a psychotherapist, when it comes to depression and anxiety and PTSD right. and addiction, 
Right. Oh my gosh, it's hard not to go. Come on, guys, like sooner rather than later. Right. And then that that seems to be the path that we're on. Yeah. It, um, it certainly does. within within the next five years from the folks that I talk to. So the the mental healthcare industry is is going to be revolutionized, at least in certain pockets. Right. Well, in Texas, we'll see what, uh, what well. happens. <laughs> With your help, Brian, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll make some waves right. down here. I think I just met an attorney who I may turn to every now and then. And uh... <laughs> This um, is not the official legal advice. Yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> I'll put the disclaimer at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Oh, well, look, let's, um, you were totally generous with your time. Uh, this, again, uh, this book is one of the best books I've ever read. I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the, the conscientiousness and the amount of consideration and just the research that you did for this thing. I'm, I mean, thanks for bringing this into the world. I'm totally, totally grateful because I am a freaking geek and I love reading stuff like this. Well, thank you. I look forward to a, another deep dive over an ice cold stone enjoy by enjoy in by. Texas in a post COVID world with you, my man. You too. Absolutely. Thank you. Control.